Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. She slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Now she knew she was pregnant, or when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. And he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. So she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, she said. Or for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thank you, Fred. Good morning. Well, my name is Sean, one of the pastors on our team. Hopefully you've had a good weekend. Maybe you watched the USA Women's World Cup game on Friday. That was a lot of fun. It's a good sports weekend, watching some golf. You know, there's a lot of good things happening this weekend, but we're glad to be together this morning. As you've experienced, we've been in this series looking at the book of Genesis for the last seven weeks. Today is the eighth Sunday of this little season called Summertide. And we're going to talk a bunch about Genesis today as we continue on in our passage. But what I need to do first is to recap a little bit of what Pete talked about last Sunday. Uh, If you weren't here, hopefully you're able to catch up either watching the sermon video or listening to the podcast. There was a letter in our e-news, but 
Pete shared some big news in relation to our little spot here on the corner of 6th and Clay. Uh, if you are an HGTV fan, uh, maybe you've seen the show Love It or List It. Are you familiar with this show? Okay. <laughs> So they have, they have a home that they've lived in for a while, and they're given a budget to renovate it. And if they decide they want to stay in that house, they're going to love it. But they're also shown a number of other houses that are better and nicer than their house. And so they can choose to list their house. And they have this decision. Are they going to love their house or list it? And we've had this same thing happening to us. We, ever since we moved into this building, we have hoped that we could love this building. We could make it work. Uh, but that dream had become to look untenable. Even now in the summer, we are running out of room on Sundays here in our corporate worship gathering. Our uh, kids' classrooms can be some tight squeezes. Uh, if you're a kids volunteer, you know this, especially some of those late elementary classrooms. A lot of stinky kids in there in the summer. So um, we went and toured other buildings as they became available, explored partnership with other churches, talked with the Salvation Army. Uh, but kept running into closed doors. Little did we know that the problem inhibiting our expansion on our property here, which was minimum parking requirements, uh, had gone away earlier this year in Bend, as municipalities around the country have removed these requirements in order to reduce emissions, make cities more walkable, and not waste resources on extra parking spaces. As, as a side note, did you know that in America, there are between four and seven parking spaces for every car? Isn't that crazy? That's why these minimum parking uh, requirements are getting taken away, but that's another topic and I digress. So uh, this rule being taken away completely changes our outlook here at Six and Clay with the ability to build on our current lot. That means rather than listing this place, we can love it. So Pete talked about this in the context of starter home versus forever home, and we believe this place to be our forever home, which is wonderful because we like this place. We like it here, we like our scrappy neighborhood, we like being across from Ben High, we like being in the Central District, in fact, we love it. So what does that all mean? We don't have any of the particulars or logistics figured out, but here's what we do know. We have six distinctives that we are committed to as we think about our home here. First, that this would be a place of worship where Christ is proclaimed as Lord by generations to come and his grace is received through word and water, bread and wine. This would be a place of peace for our neighborhood, deeply embedded in our local community, seeking to be a hub of blessing to our city. That this would be a place of justice for the poor, where orphans and widows, migrants and refugees are welcomed and served in Jesus' name. This would be a place of community where people of all ages, classes, and colors are formed into a vibrant and eclectic expression of the family of God. That this would be a place of beauty where the image of our creator is celebrated through creative goodness, artistic excellence, and awe-inspiring architecture. And finally, that this would be a place of flourishing for all of creation and where plants and animals, earth and environment are cultivated and cared for. So uh, what are the next steps? As Pete said last week, uh, first one is pray, but for real. Uh, we want you to seek after God about what this place could look like. What could it be? What are your dreams? What does our neighborhood need from us? For real, pray and help us figure out where God is leading us together. And then secondly, to plan on giving. Again, uh, we have no plans and no money. And if you talk to a church consultant or expert, uh, this isn't how you're supposed to do this. Um, you should have plans dialed in, maybe a tight timeline of events, branding. And you know what? We don't have any of that. 
And I've been part of some church campaigns that have felt really slick, uh, bordering on uh, icky. And uh, <laughs> what I love about what we're doing here at Antioch, uh, and just generally who we are, is that getting there together is more important than the destination. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to dream together, pray together, plan together, give together, and work together in order to love our little corner here at Six and Clay and make it an even better space than it is now for worship, peace, justice, community, beauty, and flourishing. Not just for those of us who call Antioch our home, but for our neighbors and for the rest of creation around us. Sound good? Oh, and one final thing. If you miss the early mock-up of what it might look like, here you go. Maybe. There you go. Yes. So uh, that's just, you know, subtle. So all that to say, get excited, get praying, and we will keep you posted as we create opportunities this fall to dream together, ask questions together, and work together as we follow God's lead on this exciting next chapter of Antioch. All right, now that is out of the way, back to Genesis. We've shown this chart a couple different times, but since we started this series, we are now in Act 3 of our six-act play that takes place in the Bible. We talked about creation there in Genesis 1 and 2. We've talked about the fall, and now we are in the section about God's people and the nation of Israel. Pete said this when we began this series, uh, but when we looked at this chart, you'll notice that things are really only all good uh, in, Acts one, in, in Act 1 and Act 6, okay? Uh, and those are uh, four chapters in the Bible. Uh, so that's about a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of the story of Scripture, less than one half of one percent. And in between, in the other 99.6 percent, we are faced with the stories of people grappling with the broken reality of our world. And our story today, it serves as a great example of this because the Bible is complicated and messy. It's not all pretty. In fact, it can be quite ugly and brutish. And that's because the story of the people of God is messy, and it can be ugly and quite brutish. And if we're honest, I think that we can say that we wish some of the things that are in our Bible weren't in there. But what we see in these stories in Scripture, it's not about ideal. It's about reality. It's about the story of what the people are like, warts and all. It's a lot like our stories too, right? Broken and messy and hopefully more than the sum of our parts. Now, like our challenging story today, Genesis, it grounds its difficulties in detail rather than burying them and just making life easier for itself, glossing over things. It doesn't just bow out of difficult questions. It leans into them, and so will we. Last week, when Pete began the story of Abraham, which I'll just, I'm going to say Abraham and Sarah instead of Abram and Sarai for clarity's sake, but uh, what this really, this section of Genesis hones in on is this story of one family, and it wasn't a very neat story. In Genesis 12:1, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, I am not in charge, but it is a lot easier of a story if Abraham was just born in Canaan rather than having to go there from Ur. He's just from there. That's his place. And, oh yeah, by the way, the land of Canaan is not empty either. People live there. That is awkward and strange and messy. But Abraham receives this promise about the future. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
So we get this awesome promise and blessing. Everything is all good for Abraham uh, for nine verses. That's it. Then there is a famine. Abraham ends up in Egypt. He tells Pharaoh that Sarah is only his sister and not his wife. Awkward. Uh, He has to go and rescue Lot. In chapter 15, we do see a vision come to Abraham telling him to not be afraid, but that also a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And not long after that is where our story picks back up. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. This, verse, uh, this first verse sets the stage for this story. And for those who've been listening, for those of the original audience, this wouldn't have been all that surprising. The first time that we had met Sarah, just a couple chapters before in chapter 11, it says this about her. Now, Sarah was childless because she was not able to conceive. But we quickly see in our text that Sarah is the prime mover. And this story around, for here, the motivation is about having no children. With the context that we know of Sarah and the context about having a son who will be your heir that was promised to Abraham, the question that they are asking together is this. What does faith look like in a God whose promises tarry too long? You promised that we would have an heir, but we don't have one yet. Or maybe an even simpler way of asking this is, can God be trusted? Because right now, it doesn't seem like the answer to that question for Abraham and Sarah is yes. So there is a sense in which Sarah takes matters into her own hands. Now, I know that sometimes this story is preached as if Sarah is unwilling to trust God that she will become pregnant. She doesn't trust God's timeline, but I don't think that's fair to her. Maybe you've walked through infertility yourself or with someone close to you. This is one of the hardest journeys that you can go on, and many times it doesn't end up where you want it to. And if that's your story, and we have that here in our community at Antioch, I want you to know that we see you and we are with you, and we'll keep praying and we will keep hoping. It seems like Sarah is willing to do anything for this promise. Who knows, maybe she even thought that this was what she needed to do as a part of that promise, finding an open window when a door was shut. Securing an heir in this way was technically a legal practice in this biblical period. We'll see surrogates come back later in the story of Rachel and Leah in a few weeks' time, and we do see that four of Israel's 12 tribes were born through maidservants. That doesn't make it right, certainly to us today. What we experience in this story is not right, but Sarah does deserve grace from us. And as we hear the story continue, Sarah tells Abraham to sleep with her slave. Abraham takes Hagar as his wife, sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant. Now, verse 4 tells us that when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And Sarah goes to Abraham to get him to do something about this tension, but Abraham essentially says, that is your problem and not mine. Not great marriage cooperation there, but uh, again, there are so, so, so many problematic parts to the story, but uh, he tells her this, uh, do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. 
Couple important things to note about this chunk of the story. First, uh, if you've read Margaret Atwood's book, The Handmaid's Tale, or if you've seen the show, uh, you know that this animosity between Sarah and Hagar is not entirely surprising. We see this with June and Serena in that story and many others. Surrogacy can be a beautiful and wonderful experience. We've had that in our community here at Antioch. But when the circumstances and circumstances and context are slavery and rape, that is not the case. Now with that in mind, the way we translate verse four may be a bit off. Rather than understanding this verse as began to despise her mistress, what this passage more literally translates to, if we add in the names, is that Sarah became little in Hagar's eyes. It wasn't so much despising her or actively hating her, it was that the honor that was supposed to be afforded to her mistress paled in comparison with the maternal pride that she had for her unborn child. Audre Lorde was a civil rights activist during the 20th century, and she famously said this, that oppressors always expect the oppressed to extend to them the understanding so lacking in themselves. This is, I think, a perfect example of how it frames the relationship between Sarah and Hagar. And the other thing we need to examine is a word that is doing a lot of heavy lifting in verse 6, and that word is mistreated. It's a word that can have a wide range of meanings. Maybe you just weren't as nice as you could have been, or things were slightly unfair. Uh, But actually, this word is the same word that is used to describe the Egyptians' treatment of the Israelites while they were in slavery feels like a little bit stronger than mistreated to me. It gives us a little better understanding of what is going on here, that within rabbinical tradition, they frame Sarah and Abraham's treatment of Hagar in comparison with how the Egyptians treated the Israelites as slaves. That is how poorly Hagar was treated. And the writers want you to know that that should be viewed with the same contempt as is given to the Egyptians during the Israelite exile. It's not okay for them to treat Hagar like that, and Hagar's flight makes complete sense. Now, based on where Hagar encountered a messenger of the Lord, we know that she is already a long way from Abraham and Sarah's home. She's actually on her way to Egypt. She's back towards going her own home. And in this scene uh, with the messenger of the Lord, there are some amazing biblical firsts and biblical Onlys, And here's what I mean by that. In verse 8, Hagar hears her name in the wilderness. If you look back at our story, uh, she has not been called her name in the narrative up until this point. Anytime Abraham or Sarah have talked about her, she has been my slave or your slave, not Hagar. That's all that she is to them. But that's not all that she is to God. In fact, Hagar is the first person in the Bible to be visited by a messenger of the Lord. There have been visions to Abraham, but Hagar is the first person to get an angelic messenger. Also in this encounter, we hear the angel say this in verse 10, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Does that sound like a promise that was given to anyone else recently? We'll come back and talk about this, but for now, Hagar is the only woman in the Bible that God gave a promise of multiplied seed. Only one. And so the angel also gives her a bit of news. The angel says this, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Now before they had the 12-week pregnancy blood test, 
You had to get visited by an angel to know if you're having a boy or a girl. And I hope Hagar wasn't planning on being surprised, but the angel messed it up for her. And in this scene, we have the first enunciation in the Bible, emphasizing God's care and concern for both Hagar and her son to come, Ishmael. And his name means God listens. And this was meant to demonstrate that God listened to Hagar and paid attention to her hurting. That Ishmael was meant to be a reminder every time that Hagar said his name that God listens to those who are afflicted, those who are oppressed, those who are hurting. God listens. If you've heard this story before, you know that what the angel says next is a little strange. About Ishmael, the angel says he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Now, this verse has actually been abused by both Jews and Christians to formulate negative views of Muslims, because Isaac and Ishmael uh, is where our faiths diverge with Ishmael being the progenitor of the Muslim lineage. Here's the thing, this is one of the most mistranslated verses in the entire Bible. What we have here is not actually a condemnation, but a beautiful promise. So stick with me through a little bit of Bible nerdery, but we have to understand a bit of the context here as to why this verse has been so misunderstood. First, with Hebrew poetry, it is written in such a way that each subsequent line builds upon the theme or the expression of the one before, particularly if it's positive or negative. So if the first line of a poem is negative, then so is the next one, describing how or why it is negative and so forth. Same thing if it is positive. So when the first verse of this poem says he will be a donkey of a man, our modern perspective on donkeys lends us to think of this as a negative. You don't need me to tell you the term for a male donkey, but this is not a compliment for us, right? Same thing for translators. And so in context, this word for donkey means different things to us. It is a negative. You know, words have different meanings based on their context. At, at home, we are trying to teach Penny a little bit about time. So we got her this little wind-up timer clock so that when we say, you know, bedtime is in five minutes, we can put the clock up there and she can see the circle slowly getting smaller. Uh, well, now she has started calling this timer Daddy's TikTok. <laughs> and uh, the first time she said it, Julia was like, you have a TikTok? And I wouldn't even know where to start with a TikTok. And yesterday, actually, Penny said to me, uh, TikTok bad. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, are you talking about China owning it or what it's doing to our kids? Like, how much do you want to dive into this, Penny? Yeah. And... Uh, so the actual animal that they are describing here, it, it really matters in their context. They're talking about a free-ranging, wild, and desert animal. It's different than our donkeys. And so rather than the life of captivity that Hagar had led, the messenger of the Lord is promising her that her son would be free, that he would roam as he saw fit. He would not be a slave. Now, I don't have time to dive into the grammar of all the next few verses, but essentially it would translate something like this. He will be a free man. His hands will be free from everyone, and everyone's hand will be free from him. And he will live in the presence of all his kin. You've heard of Taylor's version. This is Sean's version right here, okay? 
Does that feel a little bit different than the other way in which those four verses have been translated? Absolutely, right? And it makes what Hagar says in response to the angel make so much more sense. That this promise to Hagar was meant to comfort and encourage her because God had seen and was responding to her suffering. That God had listened to her and that her son would live under the blessing of God. While she may have started as a slave without honor, her son and his descendants would live with honor. And this is how Hagar responds. She says, she gave, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Here we see another first and only experience related to Hagar. She is the only person in the Bible to give God a name. God reveals himself to other people. Places are named after God, but no one else gives God a name like Hagar does. She calls him El Roy, you are the God who sees me. I think this also makes her the first theologian. This might have been the first time since she was enslaved that someone actually saw her, actually viewed her as a human, called her by name, cared for her, saw her, and she knew that even in the midst of the horrible place she found herself in, God still saw her. And when she saw her son, she knew that God listened. Now, there is an epilogue to this story of Hagar and Ishmael that happens after our text. The end of ours, we see Ishmael is born, but a few chapters later, Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. It's a whole other sermon, but to make it short, there is more conflict. There is a sending away of Hagar and Ishmael, another encounter with God in the wilderness, and ultimately, Ishmael himself has 12 children. We see that as the story of Genesis continues, contrary to what we may have been told, neither Ishmael nor his descendants are portrayed negatively, nor are they hostile towards Abraham's descendants. As we put this passage all together, I think there are a couple big picture themes to point out. While the original audience of this text would have immediately dismissed Hagar as a slave, we see that in this text, in the subsequent chapters, they actually want to parallel Hagar with Abraham. Yeah, which is very unique. Each of these things both happened to Abraham and Hagar, who, I may remind you, was a non-Hebrew, Egyptian, female, slave. Similar experience to one of the patriarchs in the Bible, Abraham. They both experienced this. The messenger of the Lord spoke promises to them. They had a promise of a multiplied seed. Again, she's the only woman in the Bible to experience this. They have prenatal names commanded for their children of Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, they both named a place after their experience with God. They're both told not to fear, both told they become a great nation, and both of them procure a wife for their child. We'll see that later. That is typically the father's responsibility, but Hagar does that for Ishmael in the future. We know Abraham is a patriarch, but Hagar is one in her own right. At every turn, she acted to save her son's life, whether that was fleeing violence to avoid physical abuse that might lead to a miscarriage of returning home to ensure her son would come to term and have a safe place to be born, to being sent away and protecting her son, to finding him a wife, Hagar's name deserves to be added to the pantheon of great biblical heroes and witnesses. And so the question for me becomes, what are we supposed to do with this problematic text today? As we said at the beginning, it's not a pretty text. 
seems to gloss over the emotional realities of infertility. It has slavery and slaves. It has a woman who is a slave being forced to have a child with her master, which needs to be called rape. She is abused so much so that her treatment is compared to that of the Israelites as slaves in Egypt. She encounters God in the wilderness, but has to go back to her master to have a child. While things are fine for a while, eventually she is forced to leave with her child into a desert, and we're told that she is given one skin of water and a little bit of food. All of this is not good. And my answer is, what do we do with this? I don't know. I have a hard time in church sometimes when we talk about these tough texts where horrible things happen and we come out with a nice, neat, and tidy moral. Because life wasn't nice and neat and tidy for Hagar. But here's what I do know about the story and example of Hagar is that it is powerful. And it is a story that has been used for hope by those in desperate need of hope. Uh, Josephine Butler is a name you may not know, but she was a social reformer in the Victorian era in England, and she fought for a lot of causes to advance women's rights, including better education, suffrage. She fought against child and human trafficking. And the places that she went that were so often avoided by Christians of alleys, brothels, ramshackle housing, she used the story of Hagar as an example of liberation theology for the women she interacted with. Specifically, she used this story to address the plight of prostitutes and victims of poverty and sexual exploitation to change draconian laws in her time that, in order to protect women and children. She used the story of Hagar to show these vulnerable women and children that God still saw them in the midst of their circumstances and that there is an opportunity for hope. Similarly, theologian Dolores Williams, she writes extensively about how the story of Hagar was adopted by enslaved Africans here in America, that the messy and horrible situation of Hagar was one in which they knew well. They could see in Hagar an opportunity for hope. They saw someone who was in similar circumstances to them encounter God, to be given the opportunity to name God, and eventually to find a better life for her family. And Williams notes that it is only in black culture do you see children named Hagar. Both Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou use the name Hagar as characters in their writing because in their culture it is a name with deep meaning, emotion, and it ultimately symbolizes hope in the midst of darkness. So for us, what I think we can do today is to read this text with fresh eyes. We need to recognize and call out things that we see as wrong in biblical stories. We might need to dismantle some things that we were taught, maybe long-held perceptions about Hagar and Ishmael. We need to be able to look at our history and not hide from it or make tidy morals from it, whether that is looking at the history of us as Christians throughout the story of Scripture or even us as Americans. We don't need to try and manipulate ourselves in a knot and say, oh, maybe Hagar learned valuable lessons as a slave. No, it was wrong. It was compared to the Israelites' treatment of, uh, in Egypt. It was wrong. We failed, but we can do better with God's help. But I think most of all, we need to look to Hagar's words and understand who our God is, the God who sees us. The one who sees us right where we are, whether our lives are put together or they've completely fallen apart. 
Whether we've come from the right family or the wrong family, whether we are an insider, an outsider, whether our prayers have been answered or seemingly left unanswered in the mountain or the valley, no matter what, God sees. And maybe this story might demonstrate for us how much God cares for those on the margins, for those overlooked, for those oppressed, for those without resources to fight back for whom the system doesn't serve. Because the world tells us to ignore these things or these people, to turn a blind eye to injustice, but we serve the God who sees. And he invites us to see him and through him to see the world around us. It's important that we see those who are hurting, that we see those who need help, because once we see, we realize that we are called to join in with God in this important work. That as we look at the arc of the story of Scripture, we see that God is redeeming and reconciling all things, that we can join him in this work as we work towards this reality of the kingdom of God today, a place where there is no slavery, a place where there is no violence, no mistreatment, there is no infertility, there is no injustice, that we are a part of this redemptive hermeneutic, that we are called to be seers as we join in with God in the reconciliation of all things. And so when I think about what we're doing here at Antioch in the context of how this sermon began, of how we want to dream about what this little corner of Sixth and Clay might look like as a place of worship, peace, justice, community, beauty, and flourishing, I believe that those things can only be true if we are also a people and a place of seeing. So Antioch family, it is my prayer that we would be a people and a place of seeing where insiders and outsiders would feel seen and known by God and by us in all that we do. Amen.